Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody, and everybody who's watching. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I serve on the pastoral staff, and our prayer, as it is every week, is that you would find something meaningful because we believe that God has something meaningful for all of us every single day. And uh, so glad that you all made it. I hope that you had a great holiday um, this last week end kind of a thing. I uh, walked in a few minutes late today and looked at Dan and I said, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Scrooge, but I did a little too much merrymaking last night. So anyway, just kidding. No, we had a great time as well. And uh, today we're going to finish off the Christmas story and want to talk a little bit um, about the wise men, the uh, three kings, the magi. They go by a bunch of different names, and I thought might, we might want to kind of tease out a little bit uh, what they are and what they mean, and, and we're going to approach it from that angle. So let's just kind of read the story to get us rolling here. This is Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse number 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Which is a very interesting um, way to introduce yourself, I think. So a couple of things that you need to understand here is that traditionally speaking um, in the church, we've grown up with this idea of three kings because of the Christmas carol, Right? And the Christmas carol talks about three kings because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But tradition uh, over the centuries uh, has placed the number somewhere between four and maybe 12. And so nobody really knows just how many of these magi, these, these wise men, came. Um, but you can be assured of a couple of things. First of all, that it was a very large caravan. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. But if they're traveling a great distance and they are bringing um, gifts and they're coming to worship and they're coming to um, pay homage to this brand new king, it would have been a huge caravan, very hard to miss, well guarded and well attended. So you got a whole bunch of people who are making this trip. So don't, don't miss that aspect um, of this. The other thing to, to mention, too, is that the Christmas carol kind of throws us in a strange direction because it talks about three kings. And at the time it was written, the only people who were truly wealthy were kings. So if you're going to bring rich gifts like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, well, you must be a king, right? So there's this idea that was perpetuated, you know, likely through the Middle Ages and then later on as the Christmas carol came to be that it was three kings that were approaching rather than this idea of magi. And there's a big difference. Um, <clears throat> so keep these things in mind. Now remember, um, as always, whenever we open up the text, I will tell you that we're tourists. So there's different aspects of this. There's different context, one of which is historical. And uh, um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So the belief at that time, at least among non-Jewish people, so Gentiles, was that um, a, a star would be in the heavens. It was, it was associated with a royal birth, almost always. And what's so interesting to me is that I found this across civilizations. It's not just what happens um, in the ancient Near East, but actually there are other places too around the world where stars are associated with royal births or some type of royal event 
typically a birth, though. Um, <clears throat> so consequently, if you are um, seeing this and where you're locating it in the sky, uh, it would be natural for you to head in that direction if you uh, are somebody who, who watches the stars, who uh, practices an ancient form of astrology. You would, would head this way, and if you believe that it was in this part of the world, you would go to the capital city. Why? Because that's where kings were. So you would just show up in the capital city in order, you know, so there's a certain amount of logic that's going on here as well. Does this make sense? So you have this large retinue, this large caravan that's going to show up in Jerusalem, and naturally so. And what's interesting is that they don't necessarily go to Herod, but he, they're summoned by him. You know, and they're, they're, they're asking this question. And so Herod summons them. If you continue to read the story in Matthew 2, you, you can see it, or perhaps you remember it. Um, but they have this conversation with Herod. And they said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod basically, as the, the thing said on, on uh, Christmas Eve, well, you're looking at him. Herod's like, I'm the king. And they're like, well, wait a second. There's, there's a star, and, you know, typically there's a birth. Well, let me tell you something about old King Herod. Man, he was a paranoid son of a gun. In fact, if I remember correctly, he actually murdered some of his own sons because he thought they were plotting against him. So if there was even a hint of plot, Herod took care of business in the mafioso sense of the word. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind about him in particular. And this caravan, because of the questions they were asking, obviously had political implications to it. When you're the king and you are, are, are notified of the birth of an, another king, um, that's competition. And so there are political imp implications to all of this. So let's kind of keep reading a little further in the story. Let's jump down to, to verse um, 9. After they, meaning the Magi, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, I don't know if the star actually moved or not. According to the text, that was the perception. Okay? So, stopped the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a couple of brief things here. Very likely, this um, event didn't happen the night of his birth. <laughs> because every single uh, Christmas pageant that I ever participated in a king, the shepherds came first, and then the wise men. And given the fact that I grew up in the church, I played both. I was even Joseph one year, Okay. And I'll never forget when I played the wise men, I was wearing glasses, and I always thought it was really weird that, you know, uh, um, uh, one of the three kings was wearing, was wearing glasses. It really bothered me. Not that my, my father's bathrobe bothered me, but it was the glasses that I was wearing that was bothering me. Anyway, that's a story for another day. But when they saw the child with his mother, so there's some um, suggestion here that that child could be, you know, based on some of the other clues in the story, that it took them two years to make that trip. That this child was actually two. And I think this kind of matches up with the story in the sense that Mary and Joseph, because of the circumstances of 
the conception and birth of the child, I'm not sure it would have been a wise idea for them to go back to Nazareth. Small town, tongues wagging, lots of conjecture, lots of, you know, some of you grew up in small towns, you know what I'm talking about. But here, in in this particular case, they were in Bethlehem for up to two years, maybe even more. So when they came, they saw the child, not necessarily the baby. So, um, I, I know it's hard, but suspend all of the uh, Christmas pageants you ever saw, right? And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Someday I'm going to do a study on those, because I think those three things are very interesting, but I don't have time to really develop it today. All right, so moving on. Uh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return, returned to their uh, country by another route. Now this, this becomes very interesting, too. Uh, We'll talk about this here in a second. So who were these magi? When we talk about them, who were they? Um, And what's the significance to the story, and more importantly, what's the significance to us? I think those are very good questions. So we have to ask of the text every time we open it up. Remember, we're tourists, but we're also trying to to find something that we can absorb and actually live out. That's part of of our discipleship. So if you kind of dig biblical history, you know, today's for you, all right? Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about these things. Uh, I want to explore some of this in order to get the the story's full effect. There are three important pieces of information. It talks about this idea of magi. They are from the east, and they're following a star. And those three things belong together if you understand more about this vague group of people that we call magi. And um, let, me, let me see if I can, I can illustrate, I don't know if illustrate it, if I can explain this a little bit, if I can describe it. The, it's the general term, Magi is the general term for professional scholars. Let me start with that idea. They are all about, about study. And they're, they're specialized in a variety of different ways. Um, uh, some of the ancient uh, writings, um, there were four or five different I guess I would call occupations that a magi could have, but they're all lumped together, this idea of of magi. Um, And you found them typically in the east, which would be uh, Babylon, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Iraq, and then southern part of Arabia. So you have these kind of pockets of um, scholars, per se. At least that's how they were perceived back then. And their job, primarily, was to... (laughs) figure out the future by observing nature. And it, it's interesting that there, there are a number of traditions that grew up around the world. One of the richest happened to be in Babylon and Persia. And they would typically focus their attention on stars. There are other traditions in Europe where it was focusing on animals, which is interesting, and reading omens, those types of things. But the ancient Near East, you had this group of magi who were primarily astrologers. They watched the heavens and they looked for signs about the future in the stars. And they would often serve as royal advisors, soothsayers, scribes, and were were typically in positions of influence around government. Uh, So you have this whole training. And believe it or not, we actually have something similar today. They're called lobbyists. No, just kidding. They're not lobbyists. They're more like cabinet members. Think of it that way. 
And so on, um, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of that. You probably have heard new administration is coming in, and they're talking about cabinet positions, case in point. You have experts in particular fields in order to help the governing of a particular country or region, if that makes sense. <clears throat> and what's fascinating to me is that it was not uncommon for them to be able to interpret dreams. And so all of this to say is that Imagi kind of specialized in this idea of having inside knowledge. Inside knowledge of, of the heavens, and more importantly, what to do with that inside knowledge. Because it's one thing to have the knowledge, and it's another thing entirely to know what to do with it. Would you agree with that? I know, um, you know, in a very simple type of way, I know a lot about diet and exercise, but it doesn't mean I necessarily do it all the time. Um, especially this time of year when there's so many good baked goods out there, right? But the, the point here is that you have this group of scholars who are quite focused on the idea of finding inside knowledge and then being able to leverage it for the benefit of either the king or the country. And believe it or not, we can actually get some help in understanding this from the Old Testament, very specifically in the book of Daniel. And so I want to turn our attention there, and I want to, I want to talk a little bit about this. But again, we need a little, little bit of history. So if we uh, talk about Jesus coming at roughly um, A.D., what we call Anno Domini, A.D. 0 or 3, somewhere in there based on the dating, um, you got to back up in order to understand Daniel. So back in 586 B.C., the Babylonians overran Judah and uh, destroyed the temple and plundered, plundered the temple and took a bunch of treasures back to Babylon. But they also did something um, else. They took about 5,000 uh, Jewish families, typically aristocracy, and picked them up and moved them to Babylon. Now, <clears throat> in this part of the world, uh, you had two major, well, eventually three major superpowers. First, you had Assyria, who is then conquered by Babylon. And both those people groups had a practice where they would conquer a nation and grab a bunch of them, pick them up, and move them to another part of the empire. Why? Well, <clears throat> they found that it actually reduced the amount of insurrection. You take most of the leaders and the bright people and you move them to another part of the empire. How many of you had made a major move across the country and found yourself, it took quite a bit of time in order for you to figure out how things worked in your new location. Babylonians just did that as a matter of practice because they understood it. They are kind of like the ancient Near Eastern version of the Borg. You shall be assimilated. For you Star Trek fans, you know what I'm talking about. But that's how this thing worked. Very brutal, very cruel, and they would take large people groups. In this case, roughly about 5,000. So in Daniel chapter 1, we read this about a, a group of, of uh, specifically young men who were taken to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, which is just a really cool name, by the way, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Keep that in mind. 
Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Very interesting. Very simple. So they would assimilate these conquered peoples, and then they would take kind of the best and the brightest to train them. Very common practice. And in some ways, they're not just training them, they're indoctrinating them. We're trying to get them to understand Babylonian culture and their worldview, their understanding of things. And the language that's used here, the Hebrew language that's used here, um, implies that Daniel and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them? Yep, those four. Um, that they were trained specifically in divination. And divination is seeking knowledge of future events by supernatural means. So we have this idea of magi, and they're trying to gain inside knowledge, and one of the tracks, so to speak, one of the majors in college they could have is this idea of divination, although they didn't get to choose. They were, it was actually chosen for them. And so when we talk about the language and the literature of the Babylonians, there's a very good possibility that what it's talking about is this specific practice or set of practices for divination. Uh, which is very interesting because Jewish law, the Torah, actually forbade div div divination. <clears throat> Don't believe me? Well, that's okay. I've, I've got some here. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The nations you will dispossess, remember this is God talking to his people, uh, you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, God says to his people, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses, from among you, from your fe fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Interesting, right? So Daniel and company, they don't have much of a choice. But God gifted them with supernatural ability, particularly Daniel. And if you read through the book of Daniel, you see this threaded where Daniel just, it's amazing. Here's, here's an interesting little piece of, of history that I learned. I thought this was fascinating. So in the ancient Near East, especially in Mesopotamia where we find Babylon, in the Babylonian and Assyrian literature, and even to a certain extent in Egypt, but primarily kind of north, you have a group of stories that are very common among um, this group of people. And the stories are typically, one of these magi is um, called upon to solve an impossible problem. Very common for that story. The second uh, common story is that one of these magi is dealing with a group of other people who are um, plotting against him and how he thwarts them. By the way, you see both of those stories in the book of Daniel, right? Very common in literature from this time frame. And so the Bible borrows from that genre of literature and puts it out there and says, yeah, we can play this game too. Only we've got Yahweh on our side, and here's how that's going to work out for everybody else. Okay? So you've got Daniel, who is particularly gifted in some of these abilities. 
and, uh, and the ability to interpret dreams, which was highly valued among the group of Magi. <clears throat> and what's so fascinating to me with this is that he is gifted by God, he is graced by God, he is empowered by God, he is protected by God in all of this while he's being exposed to things that are forbidden to Jews. That's interesting to me. Because sometimes I think as Christians we have to circle our wagons and you know we don't want to get our hands dirty with them seminars, right? We don't, mm, no, we don't, we don't want that. And here we have an example of Daniel who's like, yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to follow God in these circumstances. And here's the thing I want you to remember today is God isn't afraid of other beliefs or religions. He's not afraid of them. He's just, neither should you. You shouldn't be afraid. I remember one time um, I went to an acupuncturist um, for a health issue. Uh, it was very relaxing. I really liked it. But as I'm inside this room, um, there's some symbols of other religions, as you might expect. And there was this little part of me that was like, is this okay? Can, can I do this? I, I'm not sure. And here's where I landed on it. You don't have to land here. This is where I land. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's God's truth. Now, that doesn't mean that that truth is packaged completely in truth. You have to learn how to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. But the beautiful thing is, is if you can find those places of truth, then you have common ground and you can actually have a conversation. Does this make sense? So we don't necessarily reject the baby with the bathwater, but rather we try to find those places of, of common ground. And if you're connected to him, you don't have anything to fear either. Because if you, can, if you can see those places that aren't of God, you can't avoid them even though you are exposed to them. Are you tracking with me? It's kind of like spiritual Teflon. It's kind of the way I'm thinking about it. So if you're listening, you'll find that common ground. And look, here's the other thing. Oh, I, I wish we could get this through our heads. Your job is not to convert everybody. It's not your job to convert them. Now, does that mean um, that you might have a, a part to play? Yes. You may actually have a part to play in their faith experience. But the bottom line here is your job isn't to convert them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You just join him and you do the things that he wants you to do, but you're only going to know that if you're paying attention and you're listening. Does this make sense? Yeah, I think so. And so we have to allow the Holy Spirit to actually empower us along the way and see what happens. We find those points of interest. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, I, I, I find in the, in the Bible that we see this. And isn't it interesting that your, your faith has this too? I, the other thing I'm not saying here, because if you walk out of the church today and you think that I'm saying this, then I got a problem. Look, you have different religions that all might have bits of, bits of truth to it, but I'm not, I will not say that they're all going up the same mountain. Different religions are different paths, not up the same mountain to the same God, but they're to different mountains. But they're all mountains. And you're going to find common characteristics in those things because all truth is God's truth. Keep that in mind. And so here's the, here's the thought that I had um, as I'm reading through this story, this Christmas story. The star didn't bring the Magi 
to Jesus. The one who made the star did. It wasn't the actual physical event, but it was the fact that God put the star in there in the first place. And even though they had a completely different set of beliefs, they recognized it for who it was. Let me tell you something. When God chooses to move, whether through your words or through your actions or through miracles or signs and wonders or however that particular works, it's really, really hard to deny the fact that it's God. And so it's not necessarily the star that brings them to, 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 to worship, to brings them to Jesus, but it's the one who made the stars. And that's, that's what we're supposed to do, is partner with God in that aspect to help send people on the way. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that star. But, but what, what's, what's a star over? <laughs> that, that's the thing that we're pointing towards. And so for the people of God, there was no need to divine an answer. There's no need for it. God chose his prophets to speak to his people. He chose that. And likewise, for Christians, there's no need for horoscopes The source of all good and the source of all hope and the source of all favor and blessing resides within us. We call that the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit prompts us and empowers us to do His work in the world and to do extraordinary things. I said this on Christmas Eve, is that God wants to work through you. It's not like there's this special class of pastor that gets to do it. You get to do it as well. And it might include things like prophecy. It might include things like words of knowledge or wisdom or the ability to interpret dreams. That, that happens for people. God gives you um, some type of insight into something. And I think God wants his people to know him and to hear him so that he can work through them. That's discipleship and that's what we call the kingdom of God, ultimately. So it starts with this idea of I need to be listening. I need to be hearing what he has to say. I need to be close. I need to learn his voice. That's something that God wants. And so the, the, the way I kind of want to end this, because we're talking about a, a child being born this Christmas season, is that maybe it's time for the daughters and sons of God to actually act like they are daughters and sons of God. Maybe. It's just a thought. So I encourage you, in order to do that, to keep listening. To keep putting yourself in a position where you can actually hear God. I know it's hard. Oh my gosh. It's a difficult thing to do. To actually carve out that time to listen and to be patient. (laughs) I'm so good with that. Not. And I understand. But the point is, is that as you go into a new year, you have the opportunity to reflect. And you have the opportunity to say, how do I want next year to be different than this year? Um, and don't use the coronavirus as an, as an excuse. Is it real? Of course it is. But the point is, you have an opportunity right now to begin to dream with God, which we're going to talk about next week. That's called a hook. You need to come back next week to hear it, Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I want you to be listening, and I want you to be listening for God as you enter into this new year. Look, for the vast majority of us, we, we get a little bit of time off 
this, this week. At least I hope that you're able to. In that new year, for whatever reason, for some people, just happens to be a point in time where they can pause and they can reflect a little bit. And as you do, don't just look backwards. Try to look forward and say, God, what insight do you have about that future? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are all seekers of truth, and you are truth. Lord, we are actually seekers of wisdom, and you are wisdom. And like most human beings, we, we long to have inside knowledge that affects us. And what you're saying to us over and over again is, listen to me, I, I have that for you. And Lord, I even know in my own experience, there are times where you've, you've warned of things where you've, you've, you've spoken to your people and you've said, you know, be careful of this or why don't you try that? And, and it's, it's been nothing but beneficial. And God, as you empower us to, to be your people, I pray that we, we would hear that kind of thing more and more. That we would understand the reality of a God who loves us, a God who wants to be with us, a God who wants... Um, us to hear him, to be with him, to know him. It's, this isn't just one way of us seeking after some type of fantasy, but the fact that is that you love us and want to actually speak to us and to give us good things, to be present with us, to pitch your tent among us. And if the Christmas story reminds us of nothing else, it's that you are constantly reaching out. You are constantly moving towards us. And I pray as we go into the new year, Lord, we would move towards you. I pray this all in Jesus' name.